All right, hello, hello, everyone. Important episode here today. Something I don't get to talk about enough, and that is mercury fillings and teeth filling in general. Actually, any fillings for cavities. Now I'm in the nutrition business, so normally when we're asked about health problems, I give a nutritional answer. But there are other things that can affect our health, and metal fillings, even ceramic fillings, fillings of any kind can definitely be a problem. And I usually won't get to mention this at all unless I have to dig deeper if someone's not improving for some reason. And I definitely have encountered several cases that they really did not get better until they got their fillings taken out. I even read a book recently called *Beating Alzheimer's* by a man named Tom Warren, and he says that taking his mercury fillings out was a big part of the reason that he beat Alzheimer's. Title of the book. There is also the problem of root canals. Not really going to get into that right now. There's another great book about root canals called *The Root Canal Cover-Up* by George Menig. And maybe we'll even do a deep dive on that book. Today we're talking about "It's All in Your Head: The Link Between Mercury Amalgams and Illness" by Dr. Hal Huggins. This is a very famous book, and I do think it is very important. I'm not a dentist, but I do know a couple of dentists, and one of them is in the nutrition business as well. And they told me that they wouldn't get any tooth filling if it was them. If they were faced with a choice between getting a filling and having the tooth pulled, they would have the tooth pulled. I also think I would, but I don't think I'm going to need a filling because you can avoid cavities and root canals with proper nutrition. And I do actually have a tooth protocol. If you have a cavity that needs filling, or you have been told that you need a root canal, that protocol should actually get you out of it. I'll include a link to that. It's on YouTube in the description of the video. It's on our Wallex Warriors YouTube channel. And that protocol doesn't require buying anything from us. There are many antimicrobial things that you can put in the mouth, swish around, or chew that can fix the problem temporarily. But you should fix the diet as well. That's also in the tooth protocol video, and that's what we do. And before we jump in here, I should say this as well: if you would like a protocol from me, you can reach out to me. My contact information is in the description of the podcast. It's also on my website, notusbooks.org. That's also where you can find my books, the books that I've written and helped publish. Most of them are about health. You can find all of our social media channels, Instagram, YouTube, and so on, on the website notusbooks.org. You can find the free versions of my books, the audiobook version, in the audiobook section on the website. You can see hundreds of book reviews, including the one that we're reading today, and more on the website notusbooks.org. And I like to start people with a questionnaire. And we always start with a questionnaire. If you do reach out to us, based on those answers, we give you a nutritional recommendation, food and supplements, and any information that's relevant to you. But I actually don't have any questions about the teeth, other than teeth grinding. I want to know if they have teeth grinding at night, because I can't really ask about everything. I can't tell a customer when they're first starting, literally everything that they could do to improve their health. It would be such a long conversation. There would be so many bullet points in that. There would be so many rules all at once. Don't put your phone in the pocket. Turn the Wi-Fi off at night. Make sure to check the soy sauce for gluten. Bring your own soy sauce, gravy. So many rules. I can't give them everything up front. I can explain their situation and I can give them a relatively simple way to start. And it is on them to explore all the nooks and crannies of the alternative health world. For all the different things that could be of benefit to them, but this thing, this is a big thing, and I'm just saying I don't ask about it. 
It's not something I can personally do anything about. You have to go to a dentist who will take your amalgams out. And hopefully that dentist has read this book. This is a seminal book on the subject. And in here, it teaches dentists how, in what order, to take out the amalgams. That's actually an important thing here. You can't just rip them all out. You got to do it in a sequential order because they all have different electrical charges. And it can be quite complicated, but this is why you go to a professional. And there is a lot of dentists out there who actually know about the Huggins method. So today we're going to go through the points that I saved in this book. And I didn't save a huge amount of points. This is not going to be a very long podcast. This is also not a very huge book. It's not tiny, but it's a pretty straightforward concept here, right? Mercury is bad. Mercury is in basically all types of fillings. If they have any type of metal amalgam in them, it might not be called a mercury amalgam, but it probably does have some mercury in it. And the other metals would be a problem as well. Not even just for the chemical component of it, like it leaching out, the mercury leaching out into your blood, but a big part of the problem here, they say, is the electrical differences. You change the electricity in your mouth when you put metal in it. And so my dentist friends would say, don't put any metal in your mouth for any reason. And I didn't save that many points, but I'm going to start just reading you the preface here. He says he wrote this in response to thousands of people trying to reach out to him because they're frustrated having learned that their fillings contained mercury. Their dentist is not going to tell you it's a mercury filling, but he knows because he has to work with the stuff using safety protocols for mercury. And he's saying dentists were calling people crazy. They would not take out the fillings. They say mercury is the safest and longest lasting common filling that dentistry has to offer. And some people reported that once they got their fillings out, they were in worse shape than they have ever been. And that's where Huggins comes in here with the proper method of removing them. He says, I was frustrated too, because I knew that mercury is toxic. Yet the leaders of organized dentistry insisted, it is safe because we have used it for over a hundred years. This is the third time that the mercury debate has arisen. In the 1840s, according to dental lore, European dentists who used the new, cheap, poisonous mercury fillings were called quacks. And over there they were calling it quacksilver. Translated into English, quacksilver was called quicksilver. That's why they were called quacks. Quacksilver. But mercury is quicksilver. That era of dentistry is affectionately called Amalgam War One. Amalgam is the generic term for the most commonly used dental filling in the world. Silver mercury amalgam. This paste-like material is a combination of powdered compounds of copper, tin, silver, and zinc, which are added to equal amounts of liquid mercury and mixed together. The combination is then implanted in teeth. Amalgam War One in the United States resulted in the 1840 demise of the National Association of dental surgeons. This association would ban as unethical any dentist who used mercury in a patient. When half the dentist used it anyway, the effectiveness of the organization was lost and it disintegrated into oblivion. Later it was to be replaced by the American Dental Association, which favored the use of cheaper mercury fillings over more costly but safer gold fillings. Amalgam War II came along in the 1920s led by Alfred Stock. Dr. Stock was a German chemist who himself became forgetful, brain fogged, and ill due to exposure to mercury from his fillings. Upon the removal of his fillings, he noted the return of his intellectual capacities, and he thought it only proper to warn his scientific colleagues of the toxicity of mercury from fillings. He published about 30 scientific articles on the subject, which met with interest from his peers, but with violent reactions from the dental community. After tolerating an inordinate amount of abuse from the dental organizations, he finally dropped the subject, 
and dentistry continued to place Amalgam. Amalgam War III started in Mexico City when Olimpio Pinto and I had an argument about the safety of dental amalgam. I argued for two hours that mercury did not come out of fillings, and that if it were a hazard, the ADA, the AMA, the FDA, the CIA, the FBI, and all the three initialed agencies I could think of would certainly protect us. After all, that was what they were there for. Well, that was the old Huggins. I barely remember him now. The new Huggins emerged as the old ones shut up and began to listen. Dr. Pinto began to describe the events of the 1920s. During that time, his dentist father removed amalgam and saw patients suffering from leukemia and neurological diseases improve. His father got the idea from an old journal. Dr. Pinto also described events of the early 1960s, when he himself came to America to earn a postdoctoral master's degree at Georgetown University. His chemistry and physics professors were very supportive about his thesis subject, the diseases caused by silver mercury fillings. However, after he spent over one year struggling in his endeavor to prove mercury toxicity, the National Institute of Dental Research, just a few miles away, got wind of his research. Words were exchanged between the Georgetown professors and the NIDR researchers. Dr. Pinto was forced to drop his research and to pick another subject. After the Mexico City Enlightenment, I returned home to Colorado with my first case of scientific frustration. My whole dental education and my first 11 years of practice were now challenged. I did know something about blood chemistry monitoring, so I began from the familiar and ventured into the unfamiliar. I ran blood tests before and after amalgam removal, and what I observed created my second case of scientific frustration. This one was far more acute than the first for it involved patients diagnosed with incurable diseases who were improving. Hurriedly I sought to inform the leaders of dentistry that mercury was a poison. Herein I created my third case of scientific frustration, one I thought for sure was going to be terminal. And for the 20 years since then, many of my dental colleagues have been hoping it would be. And I'm not going to read the rest of the preface. You can see he's a dentist. He believed that mercury fillings were safe. One of his colleagues told him otherwise, sent him on this long, multi-decade campaign about mercury. And we've got some quotes here I should share as well. This quote is from 1940. It is a well-known fact that amalgam of every known composition corrodes. That's part of the thing here, right? They say the mercury filling, it doesn't corrode. All amalgams corrode. Next is from the American Dental Association in 1984. When mercury is combined with the metals used in dental amalgam, its toxic properties are made harmless. Really? So mercury is fine when you combine it with silver and zinc and so on. No problem. And Huggins says here, the real issue is which is more important, the life of the filling or the life of the patient? Good point, Hal. And I should also read you the beginning of the introduction here. How many people are really affected by the metals in their fillings? This is the question I'm asked most frequently, and it is the question I wrestled with for the first decade that I investigated the topic of toxicity. In 1984, the ADA, the American Dental Association, stated that only 5% of the population was sensitive to amalgams and that was too low to be significant. But we could point out that, according to statistics of epidemiology, in some cases, 5% is considered an epidemic. If 5% of the population had polio or AIDS, that would be over 12 million people in the United States alone. And by the way, this book is from 1993, 30 years ago at the time of this recording. Would 5% be considered insignificant by anybody other than the ADA? Strange as it seems, by the next month, there were apparently many more healthy people in the United States. A new statement from the ADA showed that only 1% was sensitive. By 1989, that figure had dropped to 1 in 1 million. In 1991, it was back up to 3%. I can find no studies to support any of these claims, however, so I wonder how scientific they really are. 
skip forward a bit here to where he figured out how to do tests to figure out that on immune reactivity of amalgam components, 95.29% were reactive to copper, 94% to zinc, 90% to mercury, 66.86% to silver, and 62.51% to tin. So well over half is sensitive to all amalgams. So 90% of us are reactive to mercury, so what? What is mercury toxicity anyways? And herein lies the sinister part of the problem. Not everyone reacts in the same way. If we all caught a cold when we were exposed to mercury, amalgam would have been banned decades ago. On a really basic level, the ways in which mercury attacks the body can be identified in five categories. The fifth one, miscellaneous, is actually the largest. The categories are neurological, cardiovascular, collagen, immunological, and miscellaneous. And to break these down further, following are the results of a study of 1,320 patients from whom I extracted the following data. Neurological problems encompass two divisions, motor and sensory. An example of motor problems would be tremors, while sensory might be brain fog or spaciness, short-term memory problems or depression. The percentage of patients exhibiting these mercury-caused problems are depression, 73.3%, numb fingers or toes, 67.3%, Memory problems, 58%. Frequent leg cramps, 49%. Facial twitches, 52.3%. And jitteriness or nervousness, 38.1%. So it seems like everyone's got some kind of a symptom. All kinds of symptoms. And he's going in, it could possibly be a component of many serious problems, you know, immune problems all, all over the country, all over the map. MS, ALS, lupus, diabetes, who knows? Somebody who is being poisoned by mercury could have symptoms that could look like and any other disease because every system in your body any system of your body could be affected and more than one could be affected too at the same time making it look like you're falling apart and so i'm not going to go through all the possible symptoms here it's a huge list like frequent urination chronic fatigue bloated constipation tinnitus metallic taste in the mouth suicidal thoughts and so on White blood cells are quite sensitive to the presence of components of amalgam, not just mercury, but also copper and zinc. In response to the placement of amalgam, white cells usually go up initially. Okay, and I'm no longer going to actually read through the book for you. Now I'm going to go into the points that I saved. But before I do, I just want to mention that several of the essential nutrients are known to get rid of mercury and other heavy metals like lead, cadmium. Big one at the top of the list here is vitamin C, selenium, sulfur. All of these are essential nutrients. We need all of them specifically to get rid of mercury and other heavy metals everyone's asking about these days. We need these nutrients anyways. We recommend taking all 90 essential nutrients all the time anyways, whether you have a disease or symptoms or not. But if you do have any sort of symptom or any hint of mercury toxicity or heavy metal toxicity, you want to increase the vitamin C and the selenium, at least for now. And sulfur you find in connective tissue components. Skins of chicken and fish, gelatin, bone broth, and supplements like MSM or glucosamine sulfate, chondroitin sulfate. These are the most common megadose sources of sulfur. You'll find sulfur in many other things like onions and garlic. For difference-making doses, we use the list I just mentioned. Zinc is another essential nutrient that is known to get rid of mercury in the body and lead and cadmium. And finally, the first point that I saved here in the book 
is the only scientifically recognized test that distinguishes mercury toxicity from all the other heavy metal toxicity is the urine porphyrin test. Porphyrins are body chemicals for which hemoglobin and other energy sources are manufactured. When mercury interferes with energy production and oxygen transport, all cells in the body are affected. The porphyrins build up in the blood and excesses spill over into the urine. Certain porphyrins that appear in excess in the urine point specifically to metabolic interference by mercury. So whoever you choose, if you choose to go and get your fillings taken out, or to find out if mercury toxicity is a problem for you, you want to know that your dentist is using the porphyrin test. And again, many people do know the Huggins method. And I didn't save this next point, but I should read it. In medicine, if a drug has one chance in 1,000 of causing an adverse reaction, the patient is informed. In dentistry, a dentist may place any number of environmental protection agency listed toxic substances into your mouth without giving you the slightest hint of the potential side effects. Mercury, copper, nickel, beryllium, zinc, phenol, formaldehyde, diocyanate, and acetone are just a few of the nearly 100 chemicals that are placed daily into unsuspecting patients' mouths. The ADA is fighting tooth and nail to prevent informed consent in dentistry. Their reasoning is that this would imply that these materials are harmful. And he compares this to the auto industry who had to straighten up their safety standards as well due to safety concerns. And skipping forward here, here he's talking about finding mercury in babies. And what could be the source of this mercury? The first three months of pregnancy is the time a baby is most susceptible to mercury-produced birth defects. Mercury from the mother's fillings can cross the placental barrier and do its damage within seconds. Enough animal research has been done over the years to indicate on exactly which day of pregnancy and exposure to mercury will produce a cleft palate in test cases. Why not share this information with pregnant women? While you should check with your obstetrician before you have any dental work done, I recommend having mercury fillings removed. To carry things a step further, many women have reported that amalgam removal reduced or corrected their specific amalgam-related malady. This includes the gamut of neurological, emotional, hormone, and immune dysfunctions. Then they began to note that sexual intercourse produced the return of these same symptoms for a day or two. One woman even suggested that I test the sperm of her amalgam-laden husband for the presence of mercury. You ever think about that? Mercury in the sperm causing her to react to it. Wow. When I did, I found six micrograms of mercury per liter in the sperm. Considering that it takes only one microgram of mercury to create disturbances, six micrograms is certainly worthy of consideration. Also, it takes but a few atoms of mercury to create a birth defect. Atoms! And an amalgam has billions of atoms. A few million molecules of mercury in one sperm could cause multiple birth defects. I have now asked many women about the problem, and the majority of those with depression and neurological problems tell me similar stories. And he's asking, how much mercury does it take from sperm to defect an embryo? So he's making the point that there is definitely sufficient material in the amalgam to cause reactions to mercury. It's not just a tiny little amount. It's not just a pinch of mercury. The amalgam is half mercury, and it does corrode. It weighs less over time. And I'm going to skip the next point that I saved he talks about how he started testing you know, other types of fillings and stuff, and he got still very high levels. Most people are sensitive to whatever their filling is made of when it's in the mouth. And he actually mentions here the book Beating Alzheimer's that I mentioned earlier by Tom Warren. In fact, I might have bought the book when I read this. I do that. And he's saying that today I make all plastic appliances, including dentures, out of clear acrylic. He uses that instead of metals. 
And he says he's got cases here of Parkinson's. Parkinson's began to respond beautifully. He's saying here that mercury toxicity is definitely related to ALS. And if you do have a filling and you are thinking about getting it removed, I definitely recommend reading this whole book. In fact, I put this book on my mandatory reading list because it is such a huge problem that people like me, many, many people, what they're promoting in the health world, whether they're promoting a diet or product of some kind, genuinely, we really don't have time to talk about every single thing that could be bad for us, including mercury fillings. So most of us don't talk about this. I don't see very many posts talking about this. This really is your first big source of information to understand how it all works. Next point I saved. Five weeks after silver mercury amalgams were placed in monkeys, the bacteria in their intestines became resistant to mercury. Simultaneously, they became resistant to some of the most commonly used antibiotics, including penicillin, streptomycin, canamycin, and tetracycline. The resistance action here involves the action of bacteria when exposed to mercury. Most cells would die upon this exposure, but certain bacteria are able to defend themselves by picking up an extra piece of DNA from surrounding tissues and attaching it to their own DNA. Such an addition is called a plasmid. With the addition of the plasmid, the bacteria become resistant to mercury and no longer take the invading inorganic form of mercury and convert it into an organic, excretable form. This gives the bacteria's host an additional dose of methylmercury, which is highly toxic to many systems in the body. The nervous and reproductive systems are particularly sensitive to this process. The new bacteria is now resistant to antibiotics that would normally kill it, and the new bacterial form is able to reproduce the plasmid along with its own DNA, so it will always retain this resistance to certain antibiotics. And he's saying this is uh, one of the things leading to the overuse of antibiotics. One doesn't work, so they use another one. Next point I saved here. He's talking about how the mercury in the dental often has to be treated as a hazardous material, because it is a hazardous material. Dentists are cautioned to avoid touching the amalgam with their fingers and to get rid of scrap amalgam because it is dangerous to the dentist. If mercury is so safe in your mouth and so dangerous in your office, then Jerry Tim, a dentist, was right when he said in a letter to the editor that appeared in the April 26, 1982 issue of the ADA newsletter, that the Dental Association is telling us that the only safe place to store mercury amalgam is in the mouth. That's what I saved there, that was kind of funny. The only safe place to store amalgam is in the mouth. And in our business and nutrition, we beat up on doctors a lot. We usually leave dentists alone, but dentists don't know anything about nutrition, and they should, because a very famous dentist, Dr. Weston A. Price, all the way back in the 1920s, 1930s, proved that Modern processed foods cause dental problems. He went out and found people with perfect teeth. Those were the people that were not eating modern foods of commerce, as he called it, flour and sugar. They hadn't made it to those populations yet, so it hadn't messed their teeth up yet. And they hadn't got chronic disease yet. They hadn't got skeletal deformations yet. They all had their wisdom teeth. They had big dental arches in the mouth, so their mouth was wide enough to fit their wisdom teeth, and their nose could spread across that wide dental arch so they have bigger nostrils that allow more air in. Oxygen's an essential nutrient too. So these people were much healthier. Weston Price went out, and this is documented in his monumental, very famous book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, by the way. Also highly recommend it. Also on my mandatory reading list. Absolutely essential to understanding how modern foods cause nutritional degeneration. He proved it, he documented it. And I'm saying he was a dentist. Dentists don't know this. Weston Price was reversing cavities back in the day with cod liver oil and 
you know, what we would call kind of like a keto diet today. Not really. It's just there was good fats in his diet and he had them on other non-processed foods. It was very simple, kind of like we would recommend today. And he also wrote extensively on root canals and dentists don't know this. They're not taught this. They're only taught to patch up the holes. They don't know how to prevent them. And he said here, he, he mentioned earlier that some 20-year-old fillings have been shown by Dr. Pleva to contain less than 5% mercury. So it started at 50% mercury, but 20 years later, it's only 5% mercury. So that other 45%, where did it go? Into your blood. Part of it would have off-gassed in your mouth. Had to go somewhere. Some people suggest that fillings should therefore become less of a problem the older they get. No, say the allergy doctors. The more often you're exposed to a substance, the more apt you are to become allergic to it. In addition to this factor, mercury is a cumulative poison, so it gets worse the longer it goes. You don't get used to it. Next point I saved here, he's talking with Dr. Pinto. Dr. Pinto quietly proceeded with diseases and dates. This type of lymphoma was not noted until 1832, a short time after amalgam was introduced in the area where the disease was discovered. Hey, they discovered lymphoma in the area where amalgam was introduced. Same time period. The first amalgam to be placed in an African-American was in 1904. Sickle cell anemia was noted to move out of the rare in 1906. I argued that these could be spontaneous coincidences, that there were no double-blind studies. He was deluding me with anecdotes. Then he began quoting scientific literature. Where did you come up with that information, I finally asked. This is where he brings up that he was doing his Georgetown master's degree on the topic, and they wouldn't let him finish. But Pinto sent Huggins' material, and that really helped him figure all this stuff out. And flipping forward to the next point that I saved, in other words, what we see in the blood represents a corrective process in the situation in the cells, not the situation itself. Conversely, high levels of sodium and potassium in the hair analysis are frequently seen in conjunction with low levels in the blood. As heavy metal levels are detected in hair, it is the interpretation of these levels through correlation with the blood values and other metals that is the important part, not the level itself. Low nickel levels indicate low exposure, which is not much of a problem. Low mercury levels, on the other hand, may indicate that the body is retaining mercury and therefore suggests trouble. After treatment, the same low level may indicate lack of exposure and ensuring health. So I'm pretty sure I saved this for myself just to note that a level of something in the hair isn't always the whole story. A lot of times you have to compare it to other things that are in the hair or maybe compare it to what's in the blood. And just because mercury level is low, that doesn't mean that's not a problem, right? As he says, low nickel levels indicate low exposure, and nickel's an essential nutrient. You need trace amounts of it. And that's not a problem to find a low level. Low mercury levels, on the other hand, may indicate the body is retaining mercury. That's not a good thing. So he thought that low levels of mercury indicated low exposure, meaning they hadn't encountered much mercury. But then he came to believe that low levels indicated high exposure, because the body will do its best to push it out. So if it's retaining some, that's what it could not get rid of. That's a big problem. Next point I saved. I asked if dentistry was within CDC jurisdiction. I was told that dentistry is a self-policing profession with high ethical standards, and as such was not directly responsible to the CDC, or anyone else for that matter. He said that dentistry ultimately is responsible for itself. That was interesting. Dentistry is responsible for itself. Nobody's looking out for the dentist. Nobody's looking after them. Nobody's making sure they're doing a good job. Nobody's checking the safety. I then told him of the floating 150 to 500 microgram safety limit that was being advertised by dentistry. He was rather attentive. I asked him for a quotable comment about the dental proclamations. 
he readily replied, It looks to me like an accommodation for sloppy procedures. Right? They set an acceptable limit of mercury, which looks like an accommodation for sloppy procedures. Yeah, it's sloppy to use this stuff in the first place. He's talking about testing urine for mercury, connecting the dots here. Now he gets into the electrical current, which I am not going to get into with you here. I didn't save anything in that. It, it was quite complicated. It was very interesting, but it's a lot more detailed than we need here. Dentists need to know that stuff for sure. And here he mentions Dr. Weston Price that I just talked about earlier and Melvin Page, DDS, another dentist, decades ago that balancing chemistry through proper nutrition was the primary significant step in recovery from any disease. Both gentlemen studied thousands of patients from a nutritional point of view. Dr. Price traveled the world several times during the 1920s and the 1930s to study primitive diets and the effects of foods of commerce. So he's just pointing it out. Price proved nutrition causes disease or lack of nutrition or improper nutrition. Talking about blood tests. And he's saying he's found some results here getting rid of mercury toxicity. Remember, I already mentioned several essential nutrients are needed. Well, he's talking about here cholesterol and vitamin E. Both of those are essential as well. Cholesterol is necessary as a raw material in the production of energy in the red blood cells. One-fourth of all the enzyme systems are dependent upon fats. So enzymes are proteins that do work in the body, and a quarter of them are dependent upon fats, and upon absorption of nutrients through the intestines via fat solubility. Yeah, I agree. We go into digestion all the time, not going to go in into it here. Therefore, all of the enzymes involved in the cell membrane transport system are cholesterol-dependent. This is important because if you do not have proper cell membrane transport, the ability to get nutrients into and manufactured products out of the cells, then you are not getting the benefit of the minerals you are consuming, whether by supplement or in your food. And he's absolutely correct. This is one of the huge problems with statin drugs or anyone trying to lower cholesterol artificially because among the numerous roles of cholesterol in the body, the cell membrane is made of cholesterol, partly of cholesterol. The cell membrane is semi-permeable. It lets some things in, it does not let other things in. It's not just water. It's not a bubble. It's got a membrane that's alive as well. It has many sensory sort of organ kind of things, right? Insulin comes knocking up on the door trying to let sugar in because sugar feeds the cells. The membrane has to recognize insulin to let it in. And that's just one of many, many different hormones and other signaling molecules and all this stuff that interact with the cell membrane. The membrane coats every cell, and it's been called the membrane, as in your, your actual brain, because the nucleus of a cell can be removed, and the cell still lives. So the nucleus is not the brain of the cell. The membrane is more like the brain, that's what they say, membrane. Anyways, my point is here, I agree with him, he's talking about how you need cholesterol and vitamin E, and I would say many other nutrients, in order to have a healthy cell membrane on all the cells of your body, so that you can get nutrients into the cells and stuff out of the cells, right? Waste, you need oxygen to come in, sugar to come in, nutrients to come in, you need waste to get out, or you're not getting the benefit of what you're eating or supplementing with if that's not happening. Cholesterol and vitamin E also help to prevent what scientists call clinkers, strange looking molecules that take up space but are non-functional from entering the cells. So just random strange looking molecules that take up space but are non-functional. Cholesterol and vitamin E prevents them. He says these are chemical compounds that contribute to cancer and are prevalent in areas of high pollution. I'm not sure about that statement. So what does all this mean to the mercury toxic patient? It means that you should do everything possible to achieve an ideal level of cholesterol to help you overcome the effects of mercury in all of the areas listed above. 
In studies I performed and published, I found positive results when people consumed foods in harmony with their ancestral diet. And he goes in how to do that. Two eggs a day. I agree with that. Kick it up to six to eight to ten. And up to one quarter pound of butter a day. Stick a butter a day keeps the doctor away. Dr. Wallach would agree. So would I. One quarter pound of butter a day. In my studies done 20 years ago, I found that on this diet, high cholesterol levels came down. Low cholesterol levels came up. And they stabilized at around 220 milligrams per 100 milliliters of the blood. This is exactly what we say. We say the optimal cholesterol level range is between 220 and 270. And of course, your doctor will tell you it's high if it's like 180, 190. They'll tell you to get on statin drugs even if you're 26 years old and are perfectly healthy otherwise. But yeah, we believe 220 to 270 is optimal. Glad to see Huggins agreeing here. He's quoting another doctor who recommended 225 30 years ago. That's at the time of this writing, so I guess that's 1960s. And then 40 years ago, Dr. Melvin Page established 222 as the optimum. All of these recommendations seem to agree that the level of, of cholesterol at which metabolism is most efficient is between 220 and 225. Heavy exercise, emotional stress, and medications such as aspirin and other salicylates can artificially lower cholesterol levels, so these should also be avoided. On the other hand, you don't want to have an artificially elevated level of cholesterol either. So again, sugar, alcohol, caffeine should be eliminated. However, many people find that removing sugar, alcohol, and caffeine from their diet is too severe. To make it easier, I recommend switching to honey as a substitute for sugar. Decaffeinated beverages or herbal teas as substitutes for caffeine-containing drinks and non-alcoholic beers and wines to satisfy the psyche's fermentable desires in life. When this has been accomplished, Two eggs and up to one quarter pound of butter daily have been found to be helpful in healing the mercury toxic patient. Even before my knowledge of mercury toxicity, I had my patients on this regimen, and I found that the body optimized its own cholesterol level. Lows were elevated to the ideal level, and highs were dropped to the ideal level. Well, great, that's interesting. Very, very similar to what we would recommend, except we would add more supplements. Next point I saved here. In 19 years of treating mercury toxic patients, I've never been able to help anyone on a vegetarian diet. Wow. I've never been able to help anyone on a vegetarian diet in 19 years. By the way, let me interject here. I worked with a clinic once, and this was actually a dental clinic, an alternative dental clinic. And they told me that if they're booking someone to come and stay with them and get their amalgams taken out, actually, that's what they did. They would ask them one of the questions, just like we do. We have a questionnaire. And if you go to a regular dentist for the first time, they're going to give you a questionnaire similar to this. They want to know what drugs you're on, how much do you weigh. They want to know basics about you. And here, same thing. They would ask about their diet, and they'd know that for vegans and vegetarians, they have to book them for twice as long. They knew that they were going to take twice as long to heal. might be shocking to some people. I know that veganism is not really the rage right now. Everyone's all about carnivore and keto at the moment. But this is something I've definitely heard before in the industry. And Huggins here says he can't even help them if they're a vegetarian. And he goes more into protein metabolism and other diet stuff that I'm not going to get into. A little point that I saved here is mercury, by deactivating zinc, can contribute to birth defects. So you might have enough zinc, 
But zinc deficiency is one of the biggest causes of birth defects, especially very serious ones like Down syndrome. So he's saying here that you could have enough zinc, but the mercury deactivates it, and it can cause birth defects. And he talks about some other essential nutrients, which I appreciate, but I'm not going to get into here. That was the last point that I saved in this book. As I said, not going to be an extremely long episode here. There's lots more details in this book. You should definitely read it. It's all in your head. The link between mercury amalgams and illness, Dr. Hal Huggins. Tell whoever you know who's got fillings that it could be one of the reasons for their aches or pains or other random symptoms in literally any part of the body. Very easy to read book as well to pass on to them, even when it gets kind of complicated with the electrical stuff. It's easily skippable or skimmable. You'll still understand what you need to do. You need to find a practitioner who knows how to do this properly. You can't take your own fillings out, not safely. And as I mentioned, I do have that tooth protocol. It's something that's helped a lot of people long before I made that video. Told it to a bunch of people, saved a bunch of cavities from being filled in the first place, reversed a bunch of cavities, prevented root canals from happening. And one of them was with that dentist who's a friend of mine I mentioned earlier. They were the ones that said, you're going to need a root canal if you don't do something. And then we went back not long after. Honestly, I think it was something like three, four weeks after, maybe even two weeks after. And our dentist friend confirmed that my girlfriend no longer needed the root canal. And she had done the tooth protocol, what I now call the tooth protocol. And if you have your nutrition correct in the first place, you can completely avoid cavities. I don't have any cavities, never have... I would definitely not want any tooth problems. It seems like it's uncomfortable, annoying, painful, expensive. There's no good that comes from it. Best to just avoid these tooth problems in the first place. Get healthy in the first place. Fix the diet in the first place. Be on a proper supplement dose. Give your body everything it needs to rebuild its teeth. And by the way, the tooth protocol only covers cavities and root canals, basically fixing a sort of infectious problem immediately or quickly. But it is also definitely possible to reverse Everything from receding gums, gingivitis, tooth decay in general. All tooth and gum problems are reversible with a proper nutritional protocol. Once again, you can reach out to me if you would like a protocol for yourself. You can email me. It's in the description of this podcast. You can reach out on any of the channels, especially Instagram, where we're most active. You can find all of our channels on my website, noticebooks.org. It's spelled not us, not usbooks.org find all of my books there as well and more as well as an archive of this podcast by the way and there's episodes on the archive on notusbooks.org that are not up here on the podcast maybe i will post all of them one day but maybe not i'm slowly posting old episodes here as i'm doing the new ones if you didn't know spotify took us down a few months ago off of all platforms because they owned anchor so i always published with but they completely deleted the account, so the podcast disappeared. Many episodes were permanently deleted, and I've been slowly uploading the old ones as I have time. But right now, there are several episodes that are only on the archive and not usbooks.org, and you can listen to it there for free and download it. And at the end of the website version, the archive version, there's a special treat. So those of you who are listening to the archive version right now, stick around after I sign out and everybody else. Before I go, just want to say, if you want to support this podcast extra, you can support on Patreon, patreon.com slash therealnotice. I also post all the episodes there. So far, I haven't done anything special for Patreon, 
But if I get enough patrons, I think I will. I would like to. I have some ideas. But for now, it's the one way that you can show support for this podcast. We do sell supplements and books and some other things, but none of that revenue is tied to this podcast. We have no sponsors. We have no ad revenue. Not monetized at all. Myself, any guests, anyone who helps edit, all of us do this for free. So the contribution definitely does help. It's the one way to see some sort of revenue from this podcast itself. And other than that, that's all I've got for today. I appreciate all of you being here so much. Got lots of other great episodes on the podcast, of course. Stay tuned for many more. Thanks again. Until next time.